you would please open your Bibles with me and turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, and we are going to continue from where we left off last week. Uh, so in just a minute, I'm going to read 1 through 10 again, uh, but our emphasis this morning was going to be from verses 6 through 10. So Galatians 2, 6 through 10, and um, as I think about our, uh, you know, college students and the college ministry, uh, looking forward to the end of the year party tonight, so you can be praying for that, that um, it would be a good send-off, and I'm really excited for some of the things planned, so look forward to that if you're coming. So last week, uh, we looked at uh, the first five verses, and we looked at how Paul uh, stood firm in the gospel and how we are called to remain firm. And so this morning, it's actually just kind of an extension of that. We're going to look at a few things that will help us to remain firm in the gospel, despite many, much opposition in many different circumstances. And so, but before I move forward too quickly, I do want to clarify one point from last week. Uh, we we're talking about, you know, binding people's consciences and to be careful to do that. Um, the reality of it, right, is that sometimes our consciences are not aligned with God's word. And sometimes they are weak and sometimes they need to be trained. Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. And so it can be wrong. And so oftentimes um, you will have to have conversations about these. Um, the, so the point that I was trying to make last week, right, when we're talking about the gospel and standing firm, make sure that you're not enslaving anybody with the free, because we have freedom in Christ with the gospel. The point that I was trying to make is that you should be careful when you're binding someone's conscience as if their salvation depended on a certain work, okay? As if a certain work made their salvation effective or not effective. Now, we know that there are many, many matters of wisdom. There's many matters of obedience, and we should have conversations. We should have arguments over those, but we should not argue over what is required for somebody to be saved, right? Faith in Christ's finished work, and that alone. So this morning, we will look at the rest of our passage. Uh, we're going to see uh, how Paul wants to make it clear that even though there is much help and strength that is derived from men, as we saw last week, he doesn't care for men's influence. He doesn't care for their influence at all. And so if you are somebody who likes to look ahead, what's coming, I have five points for you this morning. Hopefully, we'll get to all five. If not, we'll just call it, and Joel will finish up where I left off. But five points this morning. The first one, um, and all of these relate to how are you going to stand firm? How are you going to stand firm in opposition? The first is warning to be careful with influence. Be careful with influence. And that is because our second point, number two, God does not show partiality. God doesn't show partiality. Thirdly, we will see how God is at work. And therefore, fourth, his truth will win. So finally, five, we are free to be generous. And don't worry, I will go through these again if you're taking notes. So, uh, but my hope this morning and my encouragement is of the why this matters, why this is important, is that these points will help you stand firm in the midst of opposition as you look at how God graciously deals with his children, especially as we just behold just how much hope we have to live and for work for him in all, time, in all things. So let us read our passage and then we will pray. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, 
though he was a Greek, and that because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning. Uh, we recognize that we cannot do anything apart from you. And Lord, uh, it does not depend on man, but it depends on you. And so, uh, Lord, the success of our worship service doesn't depend on what man can do or anyone can bring, Lord, but ultimately it just depends on the fact that you are gracious and faithful, Lord, and you will receive your glory. And so may we stand on that. May we not look to ourselves. May we not look to other people for confirmation and for validation, but may we always look to you uh, for our strength and our comfort. Father, forgive us. Uh, for the many ways in which we live a life that is just driven by performance. Uh, forgive us for the ways in which even coming to church, uh, it's all about our performance. Uh, but Lord, humble us to recognize that we cannot do anything apart from you. We depend on you, and you are good, and you are faithful even in our weaknesses. So help us this morning to open our eyes, to see you, and to fear you, that we would walk in your ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First point, be careful with influence. Be very careful with influence. See in verse 6, right? Actually, we're going to be spending a little bit of time, probably most of the time that we're here, talking about influence. Why? Because our passage is full of that, right? He said at least three times. Verse 2, though privately before those who seemed influential, verse 6, we'll see that, who seemed to be influential, and then continue in verse 6, who seemed influential, again, again, three times in those 10 verses, Paul talks about influence. And so it must be important in Paul's mind. So verse 6, let's read it together. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. All right, who is he talking about? He's talking about the apostles. Right? So what does he say about them? He says, they added nothing to him. And Paul repeats this, right? Again, to show his emphasis. First, they make no difference to him. And then he says they influence added nothing at all to him. So then the question, right, we start asking, well, this is, these are the apostles. Is Paul trying to put down the apostles, the authority of the apostles? Of course not, right? He, Paul, Paul himself is an apostle. But Paul's point is that their message and his message is to be believed not because of someone's reputation, not because of someone's status, not because someone has the influence or the position, but because it comes from God's word. Paul, the apostles, even angels should only be trusted, right? So far as their teaching accords with God's word. So we must be willing, right, to acknowledge the authority structures that God has set up. 
And yet at the same time, there is a temptation for all of us to be influenced by the influence, by the influence of men and the power and the status of other men. God has put people in positions of authority, not because of they, the fact that they're great, but because he has decided that. And so we look to God and not men when we look at things about authority. There's plenty of dangers, right? There's dangers when we look at influence and when we're swayed by the influence that other people can have on us. And Paul recognizes that. And so I want to meditate on that with you for a little while. We're going to look at two dangers, especially two dangers of influence. The first danger that I want to warn you about and protect you from is believing or just following someone because they have a great reputation, they have a great following, because they're influential. Right? Many will be led astray by influence. There are many who sound very good, but in reality are preaching a false gospel. How do we discern? Well, be careful that influence doesn't blind you. It is a temptation for us, for you, and you should recognize that it is a temptation for you to follow big names, right, with big followers. But if you rely too much on man's opinion, you are going to neglect God in the process. Okay, how so? If you're always following what's new, what's trendy, what seems to be appealing, you're going to miss Christ. Isaiah, I was just thinking about it this morning, Isaiah 53, if I can find it in my Bible. Isaiah 53, speaking of Christ, says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. When you looked at Christ, there was nothing that just compelled you to follow him. Okay, there was nothing, no majesty about him. He was rejected by man. And so if you're following what other men are following, ultimately you will miss Christ. And that is my concern for you. Because at the heart of it, when you treasure influence, this is an extension of fearing man. How does that work? When you fear man, right, you're more concerned about what a certain person thinks of you than what God thinks of you. Well, when you let influence sway you, you are giving more credit to what a group of people think about a certain person or about a certain topic instead of what God thinks. You're fearing a group of people and their opinion and their following more than God. Church, the call is that we as Christians are not called to rely on man's opinion and what man thinks. We're not looked to people's status for confirmation. We should be able to say, right, like Paul, that their influence, whatever it may be, added nothing to me. So live. Live according to what you know is true. And we know that men are sinful. We know that we're depraved. We know that there's nothing good in us except for the grace of God. All of us are capable of great sin. So we know that, right? You know this. And yet, somehow, we end up thinking that people of influence are immune to this pitfall when actually influence corrupts just like power does. So it should not shock us that people in positions of influence will often sin in order to maintain their influence and reputation. So knowing that, don't put men on a pedestal, all right? Don't respect men for their power to influence or their ability to change. You know, I was just talking this morning, uh, this week, about with somebody that was sharing the gospel with somebody. and was just like, you know, if this man could just become a Christian, he would do so many great things for Christ. 
And that is emphasis on man, right? Not on God. Don't be awed by man's ability to persuade or produce or how many books they put out. Because all men will err. All of them. I will err. All our, your pastors will err. I will sin against you, right? I will, if you spend time, enough time with me, I'm going to lose my patience with you. I will think harshly of you. I will judge without thinking and knowing all the facts because I'm proud. I hope, right? I will recognize that and I will ask for your forgiveness when it comes. And if I have done that to you, please come and find me, right? But that's a reminder that we just cannot trust in men. We cannot put them on a pedestal because all men are feeble. Therefore, you cannot trust their influence. That's the first danger, right? We're all prone to fall into this danger of being swayed by man's influence. And the second danger is an extension of that. So we just talked about how all men are feeble. Guess what? That includes you. You are weak. You are feeble. So therefore, be careful with your own influence. Be careful with your own influence. If you care too much about the influence of others, okay, so the first danger, if you care too much about the influence of others, you could be led astray and fail to stand firm. But if you care too much about your influence, you could also be led astray and fail to stand firm. How so? Well, let me give you an illustration of my own life, because this is something that is dear to my story. Because I can vividly recall an episode in my life. This was, uh, put, put yourself in my shoes. This is 2008. This is 16-year-old Esteban walking uh, in the mountains of Cameroon. I was on a mission trip in Cameroon doing the godly thing that everybody should do, right? Go on a mission trip. And uh, from my view, I was walking, and I could see, right, uh, the mountains of Cameroon, a beautiful sight, and I could see God's just amazing picture, glory through that, how he had created it, and I was just praying and walking. This was after a long day of sharing the gospel, and I remember praying to God. This was my prayer. This was my prayer at the moment when I was walking. I would pray. I was praying to God, God, would you please give me a platform as big as John Piper's? Would you give me a platform as big as John Piper so that I could be able to impact the world for your name, right? That, help me, Lord, to be famous, that people would know me so that I could use that fame, that reputation, that influence to point other people to you. Okay, that was my, that, those words came out of my mouth. I mean, doesn't God want his glory to be shown all throughout the world? Like, wouldn't it be great if everybody knew me? No, actually, not so much. Like, now... I was 16, right? I don't think maybe not everything was off in my thinking at that time. I was still young. Not everything was in a bad place. But if you know me, you know that there was plenty that was bad in my heart. There was a lot that was wrong in my heart, wanting to be known, wanting to be admired. And even to this day, I still have to repent of that, have to repent of that mentality. And so I tell you that story because we're prone to this. Right? There is some temptation for all of you to seek for greater influence for wrong reasons. And sometimes we try to disguise it in good motivations. So what's so bad about growing our own influence? What sounds so bad about it? Well, one, the reality is that we're all proud. We're so self-centered. We think that we're already better than everybody else. So they're, all, they're right there, lies your problem. But the thing I want to discuss is actually when you're so concerned about influence and your own influence, that if God gives you influence, that is the thing that God needs to do in order to be glorified. Where are you putting your trust? Your trust lies in man and not in God. Fruitfulness for the gospel relies on that God has to make you influential and not the fact that God will see himself glorified. So do not live. I say all of that. Don't live as if God needs your influence. 
God does not need your influence to be glorified. God will be exalted even if no one knows your name. It is not about you. The gospel does not fall on your hands, all right? Your value to God is not found in what you can produce for God. And so be careful. Be careful that you don't live a life that is only focused on performance. Instead, right, you should be willing to be content. Be content that if the law that God has given you is to live in obscurity, nobody knows you, you should put effort into living and being faithful in that and not wishing that you had a different lot that God had not given you. So be careful with influence. What are some ways this could play out in your life, okay? Maybe God will not give you a platform as big as John Piper's, but what are some ways in which you should be careful of this? Well, a couple ways that I think about could be practical. One is be careful with social media, right? That's a very simple one. Be careful with social media. I, looking out, I don't, I don't see anybody here that has such a great following on social media that I know of. I'm not on social media that much that I should be that concerned. But be careful because that is a temptation for all of us. If you are act, if you, the way that you act online is different than the way that you act in person, be careful. Okay? Watch your heart. Be careful on social media. Be careful not only to put what your friends want to see, what your employers want to see. Don't give so much importance to that, but rely on God. And the last way in which maybe I think you should be careful of it, and there's more. Um, I think my weakness has always been thinking about practical ways to apply this to you. But you should be humble to recognize that every time you get a promotion at work, every time you're giving more responsibility in any facet of your life, you will usually be given a greater deference and greater influence over others. And so when that happens, when that's true for you, be cautious. Be cautious that your actions point others to Christ and not to yourself. And when that happens, you should be willing to have other people, other people keep you accountable. Ask them to, hey, like, would you tell me if you feel like my influence is getting to my head? Because at the end of the day, God will judge those with greater influence more strictly. Right? Just like he teaches us, he judges teachers more strictly. So be careful with influence. Do not be swayed by the influence of man, because God isn't swayed by the influence of man. Paul, to Paul, a person's influence makes no difference. All of this is rooted in point number two, the fact that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Well, what does that mean? I think there's a lot to this, so right, we see that in verse 6 again, so if we want to put it the passage. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Here's the point. God shows no partiality. Okay, that is what Paul roots his reasoning for why, why these influential men made no difference to him. There's a lot to that statement. God shows no partiality. I think somebody could probably study this and give a really great sermon just on the fact that God shows no partiality. Uh, and there's more that you can explore. This, uh, this is not going to be comprehensive, but I hope it's a little helpful for you. So what does it mean to show partiality? Well, the idea of partiality is found throughout the Bible. So we know first that it is a sin for us to show partiality. James 2.9 tells us that. But also we know in many places that God also doesn't show partiality. Do we have the scriptures that lie as great? So first let's look at Deuteronomy 10.17. And it reads... Um, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. And then Acts 10.34, and this, the context of this passage is, this is after the Gentiles first heard the good news from Peter. So Acts 10.34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. 
Okay, and this is repeated many, many times. So God shows no partiality. It's the truth of all of Scripture. So what is partiality? If you Google it, a simple definition of partiality will tell you it's um, partiality is favoring one person over another. Okay, when you favor or you act differently to one person than you would to another. Now, I believe this definition is actually too simplistic. Okay, it's not actually what Scripture talks about. Why do I say that? A couple uh, reasonings for that. One, I think of my own life, and sometimes you should do that too. Just, okay, is, is this true? Is this true of my life? I love my son. I love my daughter. I love my future son more than I love just any random child that I've never met, right? I will favor them more than I will favor somebody who I don't know. And that is because God, partly, right, that is because God has given me a responsibility over them that he hasn't given me over others. So I should actually treat them differently than I do have to treat other children. So my responsibility, my responsibility to my children from, from God actually demands that I favor them over others. And we see this not just with us in parenting, we see this with God, right? God treats his children differently than he treats his enemies. God shows favor to some and not to others. But yet, okay, so that's true, and yet, the Bible still says that God shows no partiality. How does that make sense? Well, I think when you look at the scriptures, what it means, and what I would believe that when it says that God doesn't show partiality, is that God doesn't show, and we're not to show partiality based on external factors, okay, things on the outside of us, like things like race, gender, socioeconomic, socioeconomic status, okay, all these things that God doesn't uh, change how he deals with people based on, the, on their social status, right? He doesn't change how he deals with them. If someone's rich or poor, he doesn't look at the things that we look. God doesn't look at any of that. He gives, you know, those, he doesn't look at any of those factors when he dispenses his blessing. When he's going to bless his children, he doesn't choose one over another. And that's why Paul, right, later in Galatians 3, so really quickly, if you turn the page, Galatians 3.28 Paul can say things like, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are his. And God doesn't, is not showing partiality based on that. That's, his blessings do not depend on what we do and who we are. That's the point that I'm trying to make for you this morning. Calvin of Galatians 3.28 says, there is no distinction of persons here. And therefore, it is of no consequence to what nation or condition anyone may belong. So God does not see as man sees. God does not see as man sees. God is not impressed by the things that we are impressed. God doesn't dispense his blessings based on the things that we can do or who we are. God does that despite of who we are, right? And so because of all of that, it is useless. It is useless for you to try to make yourself look righteous to God when God doesn't see those things. Because the matter, the truth is that God's love does not depend on you and what you do for him. Just like my love for my son doesn't depend on the fact that he dresses a certain way. My love for him is the fact that he's my son. God loves his children because he has chosen to do so. It is based on him. And so, if you know this, my question then for you to consider this is why then do you live as if God in fact does show partiality? Why do you live as if God shows partiality? And I have two people, two groups of people in mind. Okay, the proud and the proud. Okay, both proud people. But proud on one hand, they think very highly of themselves. 
right? There's one hand, you have those who uh, think that God should actually show me more favor because of the things that I do, because I've just, I've, I've grown up, I know the things that I should know, I treat others right, like God should actually treat me with favor because of who I am. Okay, if you're here in this camp, you believe that in some ways you have earned God's love because you just, I mean, if you, people just knew you, they would just know you are, you're that great. On the other hand, right, the other proud group, things that no matter how much you do for God, it just, pleasing God is just an impossibility, right? Especially, right, because you, he knows just how much you've sinned. He knows just your thoughts. And so pleasing God is impossible, you despair because you think that God could never actually love you or who you are. So this group here, the proud group, think highly of themselves. They believe that God should show partiality because you should be treated more with more dignity because of what you've done. You've earned this. God should bless you. Okay? You even think about this with others. right? You think God should judge others based on what they do, but then when you do the exact same things, it's like, well, God, like, you can't judge me based on those things because, you know, I've, I've done all these other things. I should get a pass because, I mean, look at me, right? So you live as if God shows partiality and is for you because of you. You think God is for you because of you. The other group of you, right, ultimately believe that God does show partiality because he treats others better than you. How come that person can live at peace and not me. How come that person just seems like they have so much faith and not me? How come that person has all those blessings and the gifts and not me, right? It's all focused on me. That's pride. You know in your mind, too, right, you know that God will forgive those who turn to him in faith. And you know, too, you read the Bible, you know that God has forgiven great sinners like Paul, like David, and yet, you refuse to believe that, God, that this could actually be true for you. You think God shows partiality. You actually live as if God shows partiality and is against you and shows favors to others because of who they are, and he is against you because of who you are, because there's something wrong with you. But church, that is no way to live, right? That is no way to live because that is not true. God does not administer his gifts based on appearance or merit. He does it by grace, not earned, right? That's what grace means, not earned. God's love is not based on what you do for him, again, but despite what you do. And so we should stop trying to, show, to earn God's favoritism. We should stop comparing ourselves with others, trying to be the favorite child. Because we know, right, if, if you're a son, you have a father, you know you always crave for the approval of your father. As children... We, as children of God, we can be approved by God, but not based on what we do, but because of what Christ has done in us. You can find the approval of your Heavenly Father uh, because it is Christ who approves you, not you. Remember, you're always treated better than you deserve because of the love of God for you. And so, church, look not to yourself. Look not to man, but look to Christ and trust in Him. Which brings us to our third point. What hope do we have in all of this? What hope do we have as we look to God and not man? What hope do we have as we try to stand firm and there's enemies all around like in Paul's time? The hope is number three, that God is at work. 
God is at work. Let's see that in verse 8. Turn, that, turn there with me. Uh, Galatians 2.8. For he, this is God, who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. All right? Paul could say that the apostles' approval meant nothing to him because he knows that the same God who's at work in Peter is the same God who's at work in him. And so his confidence in his ministry is not found in the testimony of man. He can proclaim God's word confidently because he relies on this God, the same God who's at work, the same God who's at work today. God, Paul relies on God. So the question we have to answer for ourselves is, has, is God working in you? Is God at work in you? Do you have that confidence that Paul has? Can you confidently say that the same God who's at work in Peter, who was at work in Paul, is at work in you? Can you say that? Because the answer to that question is going to determine a lot about how you live your life. If God is not at work in you, then it doesn't matter what you do. All your efforts will be in vain. All your labors will be for naught. But if God is at work in you, you can work unto him knowing that your labors will never be in vain. You can have peace. You can have comfort and confidence knowing that no, whatever, no, whatever situation may come in your way, God is on your side. He is for you. He is working in you. And that's all that your soul needs. So how can you know? Okay, if you're here and you're like, I don't know. How can you know? How could you know if God is at work in you? Well, a couple questions to, you can ask yourself. One, do you have faith in God? Okay, do you have faith in God? If the answer is yes, you might say, well, yes, but like it's so small. Even if it's weak, if the answer is yes, well, that's one evidence that God is at work because only God can bring faith about. So if you're in Christ, God is at work. And to help you, maybe let's look at a couple of the passages uh, from Paul. So we're going to look at, uh, first, let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believers. Who is God's word at work in? And believers, those who believe, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that God's word is bearing fruit, is working in your hearts. It may be slow, but it is true, and God's word says so. And then Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, okay, here Paul's confidence to the Philippian church, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The point is that if God has called you, he will see you through, he will continue to work in you. If God has called you, he will justify you. If he has began a good work in you, he will complete that work. He's not going to leave you in that place. It is up to him, though, not you. And so, because you're in good hands, you're being worked at by the same spirit that has been at work in Paul and Peter, you should be encouraged, knowing that it doesn't depend on you and your strength that is feeble, that is weak, that constantly falls. It depends on the strong God who can do all things, Right? That should be encouraging to you in your walk. It does not depend on you. As a church, right, we can be encouraged. God can be at work in us, right? Even in this 
gym at the YMCA in Bloomington, Indiana, where nobody else may know who we are. And people tell us, what church do you go to? Bloomington Bible Church? I've never heard of that church. Well, are we being influential? Right? Are we bearing fruit for Christ? We don't have to look to men, but we can be encouraged that God is at work, even in our small church here in Bloomington. We don't need to be large. We don't need to be in a big city to be fruitful. Because the same God who's at work, and Paul and Peter, he will complete the work that he has started. So we praise God for he, the ways that he's at work in our congregation. We say this a lot, but maybe you haven't heard it. Maybe you haven't done this. It really is helpful for you to just take some time and just recall the ways in which God has been working in your heart. Okay, remember, just take some time to meditate because this is encouraging. You are not who you were five years ago. You are not who you were 10 years ago. Your husband is not who he was five years ago, right? And praise God for that. God did that work. And if you can't think of ways in which you're growing, which God is at work in you, ask other people. Oftentimes, right, we derive strength and comfort from other people like Paul did with the apostles and the church did with the apostles. So ask people, help them to think, help you think through the ways in which they've seen you grow. Don't minimize the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Okay, if anything, many are more humble than you were three years ago. Many of you actually feel like you're not because you actually see more of your sin. You think, I see more of my sin. I must just not be doing something right. Well, the fact is when we're at awareness of sin is often a work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That is the, an awareness of sin is evidence that God's Spirit is at work convicting you. And so the fact that you see more of your sin is actually an evidence that God is at work in you, helping you see this, helping you repent of this, giving you strength. So God is at work, church. God is at work in you. This matters. This gives you the strength to stand firm. And ultimately, we know, fourth point, because God is at work, that his children will eventually be victorious. His truth will win. We have hope and what is to come. This happened to Paul, right? He faced persecution for, you know, at least 14 years, as we saw in our passages, but eventually he receives vindication. Okay, verses 7 to 9. On the contrary, when they saw, okay, that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All right, Paul receives his commendation. The apostles recognized God's work in Paul. They recognized, they perceived the grace that was at work in Paul, and they confirmed them in that. And so that now his enemies, the attacks of his enemies, are completely gone. Right? The enemies that kept on saying, Paul is not preaching the right gospel. Paul shouldn't even be preaching. Who is this guy that should be preaching? He's the guy who now the apostles say, we, receive, we have heard your gospel message, and we have given you confirmation that God is at work in you. We give you our commendation to do this work that God has called you to do. And all of a sudden, his enemies have no leg to stand on. This is what happened in Acts 15, too, right? And remember, this is our passage is around the time of Acts 15. 
Um, for time's sake, we're not going to go back to Acts 15, but I do encourage you, go back and read it. A lot of what we're talking about here in Galatians, especially 2, has a lot to do with Acts 15, okay, circumcision. People saying you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You know, and the apostles fighting no, and eventually giving the good news to the Gentiles, and they're rejoicing at the work that God is doing in them, the fact that it is justification by faith alone. The point is that God's word and his truth ultimately wins against enemies. And God's truth will always win against our enemies. All the enemies of Christ and the cross will be dismissed once and for all. So your hope in the midst of opposition, your, most, your hope in, the, in your workplace, with your families, when you're being attacked for your faith, your hope is that you are on God's side and that you will taste victory. You will be you will receive your vindication. Though the whole world may stand against you, right? The whole world may stand against you in Christ. It cannot stand against the testimony of God's word because it will all fail, but God's word will never fail. Christians will receive their vindication. We will be glad at the end of the day. We will be glad and look back and say, I am glad that I stood for the cause of Christ. And so church, stand firm. Stand firm. Because these trials will end. These attacks of the enemy will not prevail forever. We will be raised with Christ for all of eternity. And so we can live for him and not for what the world can offer us. You will receive your commendation, right? And even if you don't hear it today or tomorrow, and even if the whole world turns against you, work for the commendation that endures and lasts. And what is that? It's not, God, it's not man praising you, but God giving you his commendation. Work that you may actually hear God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? That is the commendation that we work for. That is our commendation as Christians. And so, because all of this is true, because we have hope and strength to stand firm, because we know that we trust in God and not in man, and we do not trust in our own works to stand and to be to receive acceptance from God, that means we're, number five, okay, our last point, we are free to be generous. We are free. We're free to live for God. And in this case, we are free to be generous. Verse 10 in our passage, Paul ends this section by saying, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, and in some ways, this passage kind of seems like a, off from the whole argument of the passage, but it is important for us to consider. Why, is, why were they so concerned that Paul would forget the poor? Okay, we'll get to that. But the hope that we have in Christ should free you to serve him in obedience. Okay, you have, whenever someone tells you that you are now free in Christ, therefore you don't have to obey, that is the furthest thing from the truth. You now obey and you live because you have been forgiven and justified. You're free to obey with the right heart. You can obey. You can love others without making it about yourself. You make it about God. And so, when there's a command, right, like Paul, like the apostles told Paul, do not forget about the poor. When there's a command for you, like do not forget about the poor, what is, how do you think through that? What does that make you feel? What comes to your mind when people tell you that we as Christians should care for the poor? You start to kind of feel a little uncomfortable, like, oh no, here it comes. 
Are we maybe going to start caring about social issues more than we should? Is this going to really hurt me? But the truth, right, is if we are living rightly and we understand God's word, we as Christians should be the most eager to give to the poor. Okay, why is that? Because God has given us everything in Christ. Everything that we need is found in Christ. And that was given to us when we couldn't help ourselves, when we were poor and desperate and needy. God gave of himself for us. We recognize just, we should as Christians recognize how much we've been given, and we should want to be the most generous people of all. Also because we don't live for money as the world does. Right? So in this context, why, why are the apostles insisting on Paul not forgetting? Likely, uh, the apostles are asking Paul not to forget the poor because the church in Judea was actually operating under great distress. There was a lot of persecution in the Judean church. So there, was a lot, there were many Christians who were facing persecution, living in poverty. So here we come. The apostles are caring and trying to take care for the poor in the Judean church. Here comes Paul saying, I'm going to go and preach to the Gentiles. And they say, yes, we give you our approval, but do not forget about the Judean church. Do not forget about God's church in Judea. Now Paul has the opportunity, right, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles who are not facing the same persecution. And so now as Paul preaches the gospel, he is giving the, the Gentile churches an opportunity to care for God's church. He is giving them an opportunity to meet the needs of the church in Judea. The Gentiles and the Jews who used to live in opposition to one another, now in Christ, they're one. And now they can actually love and be generous and bless the other because of their position and their standing with Jesus Christ. They can be generous towards others in Christ. And this is a pleasing thing in the eyes of God. So let me ask you, how do you think about your money? Okay, when it comes to your wallet, what does that make you think? Is your disposition as a Christian to be generous as your Heavenly Father has been generous to you? Or is your disposition to be stingy and keep it to yourself? Right? The world, it makes sense that the world wouldn't want to be generous. World, the, the, in the world, there is no hope but in this life. And so you might as well save and use all the money that you can for yourself because that is the only satisfaction that you're going to see. But as a Christian, you should have something so much better to live for. And so you should be willing to part ways with earthly things for gaining eternal things. Your money comes from God. Are you using it for Him? Are you generous as you remember how much God has done for you? Are you giving to others? Are you giving faithfully to the church? Are you being generous when you hear of a need in the church and you're like, how can I come alongside and give and help? The point and as a principle is that you should let the way that you use money be different than the way than the world thinks about money. Your transactions should actually show your faith. When you have a, take a stance for Christ, it means that you're willing to risk Money, time, efforts, whatever it may mean, for the cause of Christ. Because you live not for man, not for this earth, but you live to please God. So those are our five points for this morning. Let me conclude just with this. Remember the gospel, church. Remember the gospel of Bloomington Bible Church. Jesus died in your place. That is what Paul is standing firm on. The fact that there is no salvation but in Christ alone. And he did this. He died in your place, not because 
of your potential to influence or because you just bring great things for him. No, remember, God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't see as you see. If you believe that Christ alone could take the penalty that your sin deserves, then that same God who was at work in the New Testament is at work in you. And so Christ's death and resurrection are actually accomplishing something in you and assuring you of ultimate victory being found in him. And now, church, we can live as children, loving God and loving others from a heart of generosity. Let us pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for uh, how you change everything, Lord, about how we live. You saw us in our desperate condition, Lord, when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were poor, and we could not bring anything to you, Lord. And you saw us, and in love, you had mercy uh, towards us, now as children. Lord, would you help us to remember and never neglect the work that you are doing at work, that you are doing in us? Would you help us to live as people who are free, free to love, free to serve you with a good heart that is motivated by loving you and treasuring you above all things? Would you help us to stand firm and give us strength, Lord, as we find it in your church, as we find it in your word, and as we remember, Lord, that ultimately you will get all the victory. Thank you, Lord, that we can look forward to our vindication, to our commendation as we stand in you, and thank you, uh, Lord, that we uh, depend on a good God who is willing to do these things for us. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.